Travis and Rebecca Smith here. Uh, Travis is from Prineville, and he is the son of Don and Jan Smith. A uh, uh, couple folks from our body here love him. And, uh, but he's a missionary engineer over in Cairo, Egypt. And uh, something so excited about having him here is uh, your tithes every week, portions of that go towards supporting them and their mission over there in the Middle East. And so really cool to have them there for that. Also really cool um, because God has worked a miracle in uh, them adopting a little boy from Kyrgyzstan, and they're going to share the story about that. And um, if you get the prayer chain here, um, you've been getting the updates from mostly Rebecca, sometimes Travis. Um, but, uh, and, uh, but also just really cool because almost every Pulse prayer meeting on Thursdays, um, we've been praying for <laughs> Travis and Rebecca. So it's been uh, quite a while to um, see the Lord work out this adoption and to get the ball rolling and to provide uh, miraculous ways for little Micah Amir to be here. So anyways, I'm not going to talk much more about it. We're going to have uh, Rebecca come up first. She's going to kind of share the miracle behind the adoption. And then Travis is going to come and share about the Engineering Ministries International uh, work that he's been doing over there that we've been doing through their hands and feet awesome, and through prayer. So uh, come on up, Rebecca. And it's great to have you here. Um, I'm getting a calf workout here on my tippy toes. So if I go up and down, just don't be distracted. Um, yeah, as Rory said, um, we do have quite the miracle to talk about this morning. But before I do that, I would like to say that we really feel at home here. Um, we have been attending Calvary Chapel when we're in town since y'all started in the high school over there. And so we have been so blessed every single Sunday that we are able to worship here. We talk about what a blessing it is that God has blessed this congregation and this body. And so thank you so much for um, supporting us on the field and, and through prayer. And um, we're just really excited about what God is having, is calling this body to do here locally. And so we are supporting you as well in prayer as we um, bond together over sea and miles um, with all that God is doing here, seeing people brought into um, the church and into the body of Christ here. But this picture that you see on the wall this far to the left is um, of me and my son Micah Amir on the first day that we got him out of the orphanage. You see, four years ago yesterday, my family and I received a little referral of a little boy who was five months old. And we were so excited because we thought, wow, we're, we're going to get our fourth child. And, um, and we thought for sure he'd be home by um, he, when he was eight months old. But what happened was a week and a half after we got our referral, we were told that the country was in a moratorium on adoptions. And adoptions would no longer be allowed out of the country until further notice. And that further notice came three and a half years later. And it was a really painful three years. In the process of waiting for um, Micah to come home, God called us to Egypt. And honestly, um, I kind of thought at that point that, um, that we were releasing our son, that it was over. Because how do you bring home a little boy in a foreign country with, we're now on support. I mean, there's just all of these massive things that you just can't imagine you having to overcome to do an adoption here in the States, but doing it overseas just seemed impossible. And so in my heart, I just sort of 
released him, and um, we prayed for him every night. My son prayed for him every single night, and I have to tell you that I would sometimes listen to my son's prayer to bring Micah home soon and safely, and I would just look at him and think, okay, how do you tell a little boy that his brother's not coming home? But he prayed every night, every single night. He was the mustard seed in our family. <laughs> and um, anyway, so in December, we heard that Kurdistan was opening again. And so we frantically scrambled to do what we could to get funding, to get, um, to get our paperwork together. And miraculously, it all came together in two months. And we were able to go visit him in May. And, um, and then as all of this is happening, if you guys are in the prayer groups and things like that, you know that there had been roadblock, roadblock, roadblock that we were having to overcome. The country is again shut down. And because we had a yes from a judge, we were able to bring Micah home. But even when I went on May, no, when did I leave? August the 12th. On August 12th, we did not know if Micah was going to be able to come home with us because now, again, the country has shut down. So we went in faith, or I went in faith thinking, okay, God, you're going to open doors. You're going to do this. But we aren't promised that God is going to do that. We're promised that God will be with us when we struggle. Not always that we're going to get what we want. And before we went on Isaiah 43, God gave me this verse. He said, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. The day after we, I got Micah out of the, um, the orphanage, we went to the vital records and to get all of his paperwork to complete the adoption. And we were told that the letter had been sent out to all of the agencies that they were not to process any more adoptions and therefore they could not give me the paperwork. After a myriad of events, um, we finally had to appeal to the General of Investigations who is the actual guy who can revoke my adoption. And I actually thought this was going to happen because this man hates adoption. And this happened on a Tuesday. And that Tuesday morning we had gone and we were given a special letter from the Ministry of Social Development that was not accepted. They said we need to hear from the General of Investigations. At that point, I went to the bathroom in a terrible little bathroom because the potties are on the floor. They're not. They're porcelain. They're porcelain, but they're on the floor. <laughs> and I sat down in this bathroom. I cannot ever tell this story without crying. And I said, God, your word is not true. It is not true. You said I would pass through waters and I would not be overwhelmed, but I am overwhelmed. And you said I would pass through fire and I would not be burned, but I am being burned. And I said, you've got to help me because I don't believe that you are, I believe that your word is true, but I don't believe that you see me. I need to know that you see me. And I got up off that floor after I don't even know how long, and I did not see any flicker of light. I had no great peace. No, nothing moved. But 45 minutes from that prayer, I had everything I needed for my adoption. <laughs> and God had released all these papers to us, and it was a miracle because... God was more faithful to me than I was to him. And through this process, God has continually been showing himself to be more faithful because, you know, you read stories of missionaries and you think that they have this great faith. They do these great things. And, 
And I read some of their stories and I think, wow, how do they, how do they do that? But the truth is, we just put one step in front of the other, believing that God's word is true, even if we don't feel like it's true all the time. Our hearts are breaking this morning because we are leaving this town. We left this town and we left this church. We don't feel like leaving, but God's will and his purpose is greater and he's with us. And so I would just thank you so much for your prayers. And I would ask that you please continue to pray for us at the Pulse. And please remember us in your homes because um, we need prayer in order to do God's will. Because this little boy back here <laughs> who is laughing, not in an orphanage, he's here because you were faithful to pray for us. My husband's going to come up and share a little bit about our life in Egypt because we have that going on too. So... <laughs> Good morning. My name is Travis, as Rory and my wife said, and um, yeah, it's it's neat to be here this morning. My roots are uh, deep in this town. Um, when I think of home, I think of Prineville. Um, I graduated from Crick County High School in '91, and this this I don't know. Growing up here, this place never leaves your heart. So it's really neat to be back here sharing this morning. And I'm going to change gears a little bit from what my wife was sharing about to um, what the Lord has allowed us to do and to see really for the last couple of years. Um, it was about two, a little over two years ago that uh, my family and I moved to Cairo, Egypt to join an office uh, ministry that was actually starting an office there. It was called Engineering Ministries International, and they were starting a field office there. So we were one of uh, three families that were um, able to help start this office up. And I'll just give you a real quick uh, overview on the ministry. It's a ministry which provides engineering or architectural services to come alongside other ministries or churches who are furthering the gospel and, share, and doing this to the poor, doing this for the poor. Um, that's basically the two criteria we, we, uh, we fall under. So we serve many ministries, many churches, um, and it's, been, it's just been a real blessing to be part of that. Um, I love the ministry. I love what I do. I've been a civil engineer for about 15 years now. Um, but as I shared in the first service, I'm not going to share about the civil engineering because I know most people's eyes would gloss over in about three minutes. So it's not that interesting, <laughs> even though I love it. Um, but what I want to share about is just some of, the, uh, some of the ministries that we've got to work alongside, some of the churches, and just to share a little bit of their stories because there's a lot of stories coming from the Middle East right now. And what... It, this, what the news, what the media is sharing is true, but it's a very narrow perspective on what is really happening over there, what all is happening over there. And just by our vantage point, just by the opportunity to live there, to work there, to do ministry with others there, we've been able to hear and see other stories, which the media, obviously, they're not that high on how the gospel is going forward. And so there's been some really neat things that we've got to be part of and gotten to see the last few years. And so... Um, I just wanted to share a couple of quick stories and um, just kind of a real brief overview. And again, this is only from our vantage point. I don't, I don't pretend to say this is all that God is doing over there. This is just a few of the things that we've gotten to see. Um, so I'll start off. Um, this picture on the left, I'm not going to spend much time on it, but that was a picture that was taken very close to our apartment there in uh, Cairo, Egypt. 
Uh, it's just a couple blocks away, actually, from it. And that was the, that was the night um, after Mubarak, uh, pre previous President Mubarak, had fled the country. And the reason they are, they're doing that, they got their aerosol cans and they're lighting those up, is because it was like a massive street party in Cairo. It had been about three and a half, four weeks, something like that, of just this a very strange time there. We had, we had moved to Cairo about six or seven months before that, and there was just a night and day shift um, when the revolution started. It was, it was very, it was ominous on the streets. It was, it was difficult. And so with Mubarak fleeing and the revolution succeeding, it was, it was just this massive street party that was, that was um, taken on by all Egyptians, Christian and Muslim. Um, now, most of you know these kind of stories. Most of you have heard at least a little bit about some of the dictators who've been overthrown or who have fled or some about the Islamic regimes that are coming to power now, or even the more recent news, which has um, been a response to this movie that was produced here in the U.S. and some of the anti-American, anti-Western um, thoughts on that. But, um, but anyway, now I'm going to, again, switch gears and maybe go into a couple of these stories that um, you probably haven't heard as much about. And we'll start, uh, this, uh, this picture to the right here was actually taken by a friend of ours, it, this, um, this uh, area that is behind the picture where you can see these two men who are holding hands, this area is called Medan Tahrir. It's, uh, it's Tahrir Square. It's the center, kind of the heartbeat of all of Egypt, um, and it's right downtown Cairo. And this picture was taken right when the revolution was really kind of coming to a crescendo. It was getting really bad. People were dying daily, um, and it was, there was just a lot of violence, a lot of pe people fighting against the police, people fighting against each other. Um, so it was just, this was the, the point where nobody knew which way the uh, ship would turn. Um, but the reason this picture is so neat to me is because of the reason these two men are holding hands here. And they actually form a human chain around all of those behind them. And if you can see closely enough, the, all the men that are behind them are actually praying. This is during um, their time of prayer. It was a Friday. Um, and so they are gathered together in Tahrir, and this is one of the ways that they... Um, showed solidarity with each other was to come together to pray, and obviously they wanted to see Mubarak leave. But um, the reason these men, and I, I believe it was only men that were gathered around them um, in this human chain, were there to actually protect them because um, at this point, Mubarak was still trying to hang on to his power. And so they were doing all kinds of things like taking water guns down there and spraying it right into these men while they were praying just to try to disperse the crowds. Uh, you can imagine that would be pretty hard um, reaction. So they were doing everything they could to try to disperse the crowds down in Tahrir. And so these, this group of people formed this human chain to protect them while they were praying. Now what's amazing is this group of people all comes from the evangelical church that we go to in Cairo. These are all Christians. And the reason they did this was just to allow, even though they're not praying to Christ, they don't understand who Christ is, they're showing their love and support for them in order to just begin to witness to them. And what is especially amazing is that um, immediately after the prayers, um, obviously the human chain, the human circle um, broke up and they started to disperse back amongst the crowd. And um, our friend, though, heard the imam who said, the Muslim imam who addressed, his, who addressed his, um, all those that were praying in front of him, and he said, do you know why you were able to pray this time? Do you know why the police didn't spray you down with the water guns? And he said, look at these people that are leaving the crowd. These are Christians, and the reason they did it is because they love Jesus Christ. And 
it is almost impossible to share how amazing that statement is. And I honestly, I have no idea why he said that, but he knew that. And he, however it was that God put that on his heart and he understood this, it, the, the testimony goes forward. And so this is, we heard many other stories like this, and I actually had the opportunity too to share the gospel during the revolution just because of this, these hard times that were going on. And these aren't the, these aren't the things that the media is picking up on. Um, maybe if we could skip to the next slide. Um, I want to share, again, this, this points back to um, my work more so. Um, as, a, as working for Engineering Ministries International there in Egypt, I lead a few different project trips each year, um, getting, again, to work alongside the churches and ministries that are um, furthering the gospel. Um, I just want to share a brief, brief snippet from uh, two of the projects that I've worked on just to really share the heartbeat and some of the ministry that is occurring in the Middle East that I think is that I think is personally amazing. Um, this picture on the bottom right here, that's me. I had a bald head for quite a while, so it's, I got hair again. But the, uh, there's a pastor on the, the very far right of that, and he was the pastor that we did a project for in northeastern um, um, Jordan, which is a very densely populated Muslim area, um, 99 point something percent Muslim. Um, but they are one of the very few lights that is there, and he is a very powerful, strong man. You would love to just be around this guy. He just, his life is the gospel. I mean, it's, it's, I got to hear Rory's sermon already. So this, this, this man is living out what Rory's preaching here. And I, it's just, it's just awesome to be around guys like this. Just the, he is sold out for the gospel and he does not care if he loses his life. He's doing this in an area where, you know, he's obviously not the most popular person, but he's a very bold evangelist, him and his family and all the leaders of his church. Um, anyways, we, uh, our project for them was to, they had an existing church campus, which wasn't um, originally built up that well. And so they invited us to come and help them um, because they were growing um, uh, out of the capacity of their church building. So they invited us to come and figure out a way to use their, their church campus and take it forward because they had some ideas for other ministries. And so we came up with a two-phase two plan that would allow them to not only um, utilize the existing church for a while, but to build another building and to build a larger church, which they're, Lord willing, hopefully uh, going to fill up um, in the future. Um, so anyway, a few months ago, I was uh, communicating with uh, Pastor Noir uh, via email, and I, I just wanted to check in with him, see how the project was going, and just see how his life was going. And... He wrote me back. He said, well, the project's been put on hold. We started, we had the ground floor moving for this first phase building, but then everything started to intensify in Syria. So we've had to put a hold on it because there's a massive number of refugees who are fleeing Syria into northeastern Jordan, um, seeking refuge wherever they can find it because the situation in Syria is really bad. It's much worse than many other parts of the Arab world at this point. But what was neat about this is what he, was, what he shared at the end of it. And this is, again, I mean, we know all of, we hear about the war in Syria. We hear about the horrible things that are going on there, and these are true. But um, Pastor Noor and many members, actually, he said most of the um, families from his church have opened their houses to invite these refugees in. And many of these are Muslims who obviously are broken. They're devastated by what their Islamic government is doing to their they're devastated in every sense, and here they are. They have Christians who are reaching out and loving them. And he said many of he didn't say many, several of them have already come to believe in Christ. Others are very willing and open to listen. And so, 
again, through a, an area where there's just been a lot of devastation, and we don't get to always hear the cool stories that are going on. The gospel is going forward, and God is using this, even these horrible things, to take his gospel forward. Um, so these, these are the things that make my work, uh, that I just flat out love it, is just we get to be a small part of helping these people take the gospel forward and do what they're doing better. Um, I'll share just another quick snippet from my most previous, recent project. It's the Anglican Church here, and um, it's in downtown Cairo, right along the Nile River. Um, they have a, it's a piece of land that is amazing, really. They've got, a, it's a, almost two acres along the, just on the other side of the Corniche Road, um, right alongside the Nile River. And they've had this, they've had this, the Anglican Church has had this property for 80-some years. It got built up over time. And it really never had a good vision or plan to help build or add in new buildings. And so it doesn't function well together. They're growing out of their seams on all of the different ministries that they're trying to perform. And things are actually at odds because it, the, there's just no continuity within the site. So that's why they invited us in was to come in and come up with a plan to maybe take out a few of the buildings and help them to think about how they can further their ministries and expand for the future. And so that's, that's what we were able to provide them. Um, but one of the neat stories, again, behind the scenes here is the ministry that they've been pursuing for the last 15 or 20 years, which is a ministry to the deaf population in Egypt. And this is a highly neglected, um, highly neglected population there, uh, much more so than in the States, much less resources for deaf people there, not hardly any um, educational opportunities for them. And so they are neglected. They're kind of put on the side, and they basically grow up in poverty, or their families just treat them like you stay in this corner of the house and don't bother us is, is how they're treated. So it's, it's, it's a very rough life there if you're born handicapped. Um, anyway, the Anglican Church saw this, and their hearts grew for this, and they've been reaching out to them for 20 years, and now to the point where their ministry is growing beyond the walls of what they can do within their existing buildings. Again, that's, that's why they invited us. But um, as we were working with them and helping to develop their, um, this long-term vision for them, um, the Lord just really struck me with the fact that when, when we are all gathered together, for those of us who actually know Christ, who are worshipers of him, when we are gathered before Christ one day in eternity, there's going to be every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And we know this, we hear this. But it didn't strike me that, well, I'll back up a step. The deaf um, sign language in Egypt is different than every other sign language around the world. If you speak deaf sign in Egypt, you cannot communicate with somebody who speaks deaf sign in America. All of that means that if somebody doesn't take the gospel into their language, there won't be believers coming from this tongue. And so that's what the Anglican Church is doing. They're reaching one of those unreached people groups. And it just it really struck me that week that, wow, this is, this is amazing, Lord, and these are going to be some of those that are worshiping before your throne. I trust they will have tongues that are spilled loose on that day, but these are some of those that need, need someone to go into their culture, go into their language, and share the gospel with them. And it's really cool because the first phase of what we designed for them is a studio where they're actually doing videotaping um, gospel presentations in sign language, and that's going to be widely distributed um, here shortly. So that's, that's another exciting thing that's been happening there. But again, these are, these are just, a, again, a narrow um, perspective on uh, what the Lord is doing. It's just some of the things that we've seen, and there's many others, too. If we can jump to the last slide, um, I'll just briefly share with you why we're doing this. Um, 
What this, uh, there's, this is a rock carving that is just outside of Cairo. And if you can read it up, there's kind of small print. It says, we will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And we all know what this is referenced to. This is the second coming of Christ. It's written in English and Arabic. This is a rather large um, carving. It's actually the, the portion that is of Jesus is about 30 feet tall. Um, it's one of several. I just took a snapshot of this picture. Uh, but there's actually several other gospel-related stone carvings along this wall. And I think it's just an awesome testimony of God, what God is going to do. And it lies there what, on the outskirts of what, what is considered the, um, the, uh, the center of Islam as far as, um, as, far as learning. It's, you know, this testimony is right there on the outskirts. And the reason that testimony is there is because of what God is doing in the village that is right below it. It's a very po- impoverished community where God is just reaching in. Many people are coming into this impoverished community sharing the gospel. And so there's been a lot of transformation in that area. Um, but my reason for including this at the, end of the, at the end of the short presentation is because that is what I want to see more than anything else. I, um, I, I don't have faith in the American government, the Egyptian government, anything that people can do ultimately. I love what our government is about. I'm not, gonna, I'm not jumping on some bandwagon from somewhere else. But ultimately, my hope is not in what people are going to lead us to. My hope is in the day when our Lord returns. And the more I read, the more I see what his kingdom is going to be like when it is fulfilled and he is back. That's what I want. That's what we all want. And I cannot wait for that day. And there's a verse um, in Matthew 24, and it's right after Jesus had or Jesus was uh, communicating with his disciples, and he had just told them that the temple was going to be destroyed. And so they're asking these questions. Okay, when, when is the temple going to be destroyed? When, you know, when is the end of the time? You know, when is the end of the age? And when, when will you be returning? And so it's, they kind of intermix these, these questions together, and Jesus responds with a lot of different things that are all woven, to, a lot of different answers that are all woven together as well. And it talk, he talks about wars and earthquakes and all of these things that keep, increasing it's it's just like a drumbeat that's getting louder and louder as it gets worse and worse and harder and harder um but in the middle of all this if you look at this verse there's one thing that he has left in our hands and it's it's this passage where he says this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come i see that as this is our part if we can be a small part of taking the gospel around this world to people who don't have the opportunity to hear it. And there are still a lot of people who don't get to do this on a Sunday morning. There are so many people who don't have any chance. They probably won't get to interact with a Christian in their lives. And so think about how bad, if the roles were reversed, how badly would you want them to come to you, even if that meant them losing their lives? And so I, my, my passion, my heart, and it's hard because just as my wife shared, we're leaving today, we're leaving my family again, and frankly, that really sucks. <laughs> it's hard. It's really hard saying goodbye. I thought it'd be easier this round. We did this two years ago, but I think it's almost harder this round. Um, but, but I believe our Lord and I believe his promises. And if he allows us to be a small part of what he's doing, that's going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and I'll do that. And so that would be my, my encouragement to you all is to think about any way, any way that you could be part of that. And we so thank you for your prayers and support um, but pray about that because I don't consider myself much of anything. <laughs> this was, I, I was an average student, average everything, and God has just put this more and more on my heart in the last 
seven or eight years as I've seen his word and his character and his plans. Um, so I just encourage you to pray about how you could be part of that as well. And I'll end with that. All right, I know, tempting to call it a day right there. Um, don't worry, we're only going to do one verse in Romans chapter 12. If you want to grab your Bibles and flip there, if you don't have a Bible, uh, lift up your hand and we'll get a Bible to you. Um, maybe Anthony could grab a couple of those. Maybe wiggle your finger if you need a giant print. And uh, Romans chapter 12, you're going to read verses 1 and 2. And uh, the plan was to get through verse 2, but uh, really just getting through 1 today. Let's go ahead and read it. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's pray one more time. Lord, as we come with open Bibles on our lap, Lord, and hearts that are just tuned in to you and what you'd speak to us today, Lord, we pray that you would just um, show us, Lord, where we've fallen short. Show us areas of our life that we've not been giving totally over to you. And Lord, motivate us by the truth that we know of who you are and what you've done we pray that that would just be what uh, propels us into lives of ministry, lives of service, lives of love, lives of evangelism, lives of um, healthy parenting and healthy friendships, Lord, as we see your great grace and your great mercy change us to be like you. Please, God, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we begin chapter 12, we dive into one of the most popular scriptures in the New Testament. You probably know it and uh, were lipping it along with me as I was reading it. Uh, it's the third and final section, really, of the book of Romans. Um, as uh, some, some students have kind of divided it up, uh, we have chapters 1 through 8, which Paul has spoken doctrine to us. And that produces great faith in us as we hear of justification and sanctification by grace through faith. In chapters 9 through 11, we've been going through those chapters, chapters on prophecy and God's sovereignty, and that produces hope in the believer's life. And then the final section here that we're going into today, uh, chapters 12 through 16, uh, we have practical application, working out all of these truths in our life, which leads to love. So in Romans, you got faith, hope, and love, all being inspired by the Holy Spirit as we read the word. As John Stott says, Paul regularly combines doctrine with duty, belief, and behavior. Here he turns from exposition to exhortation and from the gospel to everyday Christian discipleship. And you know what? That's a beautiful thing, to take the gospel and be uh, shot forward to everyday Christian discipleship. Uh, Douglas Moo, one of the famous commentators on the book of Romans, says, If we take to heart the truth of the gospel that he has presented, we will have a transformed worldview that cannot but, our, but affect our life in uncounted ways. 
What we are to give to God cannot be produced independently of God's continuing gracious provision. God's uh, giving to us is not simply the past basis for Christian obedience. It is the continuous source. It's indicative and imperative. If you're a, you know, an English scholar, uh, these two things do not succeed each other as two distinct stages in Christian experience, but two sides of the same coin. So chapters 1 through 11 are indicative. They've indicated to us that we are sinners who've fallen short of God's glory, that on our best day, we could never work our way to the holy throne room of God, to paradise, to heaven, and to relationship with God. But we are justified by God's grace, by his gracious free provision through his son. And then we're set apart for the rest of our life, again, through God's gracious free provision of his son and his Holy Spirit. And all of these things lead us to the imperative, to the now it's time to work out these things. Uh, Ephesians is the same way as we've been looking at the marriage study. We've looked at chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians where we dive into the riches of God's goodness upon Christians. And then chapter 4 verse 1 is this hinge where now that you know the, the indications of how much God loves you, the hinge swings. And now it's imperative that you live out a life that's glorifying uh, to God and furthers his kingdom. As John Stott said, it's a marvelous thing to see the great doctrines of the cross, the resurrection, and the second coming being pressed into the service of practical day-to-day Christian behavior. And in chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, that's what we're going to see. The cross, the great truths of Jesus, the resurrection, and his second coming being pressed into the practical workings of our behavior. Chapter uh, 12 has kind of been divided into three points by me, maybe by a couple other guys too. Um, But I like to say that it's broken into upreach, inreach, and outreach. Uh, In verses 1 and 2, we have the believers upreach and their Uh, worship life to the Lord. In verses 3 through 13, we have the believers in reach and their service within the church, serving serving the body, serving fellow believers. And then the rest of the chapter, uh, the believers outreach, even so far as to loving and laying your life down for your enemy. All that Christ has done for us remains of no value to us so long as we are outside of Christ, John Calvin said. And so as we've been brought into Christ by the blood of the Lamb, by his sacrifice, now everything that's done for us is of value to us and of value to the rest of the world. So verse 1, the simple verse that we're looking at today, we're going to break it up. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Uh, I had a friend back in high school who got saved out of a crazy life of drugs and uh, gang, gang living. Yes, I have gangster friends. Um, he actually was running from the law in Portland and ended up on a cattle ranch down in Lakeview. But um, I remember, you know, discipling him and we were memorizing Romans 12 together. And I can still hear him just saying, I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Every time I hear it, I think of, of my buddy Willie. And, uh, and when Paul says that, it sounds kind of funny. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. He's requesting something earnestly. He has a heartfelt entreaty to his brothers and sisters 
in Rome. There's this gentle tone of a pastor that lies somewhere between making a request to us and a command to us. You know, the request, it's like, hey, man, I was just wondering if maybe you could give your life for Jesus, you know? And then the command would be like, you're giving your life for Jesus. What Paul's doing, it's somewhere in between, like, please give your life for Jesus. That's what Paul is doing here. He says, I'm begging you, I'm entreating you. And he says that word, therefore. This word, therefore, makes us look at everything we've learned before. And what he's saying is, from Romans chapters 1 through 11, therefore, all this stuff, I'm begging you. In light of the gospel that you all have been learning here at Calvary Chapel of Crook County, we've learned about the radical depravity of man. We've learned about the doctrine of justification that were declared right in the sight of God by his gracious provision alone through faith in Christ alone. We've studied the doctrine of sanctification by the Spirit of Lone. We've, we've studied the theology of God's sovereign election and plan of salvation for the Jews and the Gentiles alike. And when Paul came to the end of those two sections of the book of Roman, he essentially wrote a worship song that says in 1133, and you can flip there and we might have it on the screen, but it says, Oh, the depth and the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who's first given to him, that he should pay him back? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This word, therefore, in chapter 12, verse 1, it means all of this is so good and so great and shows you how the creator of the universe has purposefully and thoughtfully thought of you and has sent his son to die to redeem you of your destructive, sinful behavior that will end in death, an eternal death of hell, and is slanderous against the very God who has creator rights over you. Therefore, my brethren, I am begging you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That word, therefore, provides the motivation and the propulsion in the Christian's life to live a Christian life because it's still all about Jesus and it's still all about the power that he supplies. Brethren, brethren, brothers, he brings it to an intimate level. Other parts of the book, he calls them slaves of righteousness. Maybe it doesn't fit so well here. Slaves of righteousness. You know, he, he's brothers, Brothers, lay your lives down for Christ by the mercies of God, by the pity of God. Look back in, at the doctrine and the gospel of salvation and do you see God's mercy? Doesn't that motivate you to want every aspect of your life to be given over to Jesus? I love the, the Phillips paraphrase. J.B. Phillips uh, wrote this uh, paraphrase of the scripture and I've uh, been liking it more and more every week. And we'll look at it more this week. But just real quick, a snippet of the Phillips paraphrase. He says, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God, give your bodies as a living sacrifice. Open up your eyes. Let them be wide open to all that God's done for you. And I mean it right now. You guys right there. I'm looking at you. You do it. Think back about all the junk you've done, all the ways that you've rebelled against God, all the way you've given God the finger and said, I'm going to do it my way, not your way, God. I want what I want, this lust, this 
you know, pleasure of the flesh, whatever it might be, my way, not your way, forget you. And he said, even though you're my enemy right now, <laughs> I'm gonna send my son and shed his perfect spotless holy blood so that you can be forgiven of that rebellious attitude that you've got. That moves us with eyes wide open to the mercies of God. That moves us to holy living more than anything else. As the psalmist says in chapter 116, verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? Think of what God has done. What could I possibly give him back? Talking to a young engaged couple this week and, and working pre-marriage counseling with them and, and just, you know, what's you guys walk with the Lord? Like, well, we, you know, we believe in God and we know God loves us, but we just don't really give time to the Lord. We don't really fellowship anywhere or anything like that. And I just looked at the guy and said, you know, hey, you're in the army. You know, I said, if your buddy, if you're over there in Baghdad and a, and a Taliban guy threw a grenade out there to you guys and your buddy dove on the grenade and sheltered you from the blast, what would the rest of your life be attitude-wise towards, towards that buddy who gave his life for you? Wouldn't you give it all for him? Wouldn't you go home, take care of his family, honor his memory, the cause that he was about? Wouldn't you be about that cause? Wouldn't you just lay your life down for your friend who laid his life down for you? That's what's going on here. Jesus jumped upon the grenade and the concussion of sin and of death and eternal hell, a billion gazillion times worse than anything a grenade could do. And he laid his perfect life down. So that we, in response, would, though we're living and though we will live, we'd lay our life down for Jesus as well. Stott quotes F.F. Bruce by saying, There's no greater incentive to holy living than a contemplation of the mercies of God. It was well said by Thomas Linlinthan, excuse me, can't pronounce it, that in the New Testament, religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. Do you guys want to live a life that's, that's, perfect for the Lord, perfect in every area, whether you're talking parenting, sex, finances, war, politics, you know, entertainment, you name it, but you want to have a holy life that's pleasing to the Lord, then focus on God's mercy and camp out at the foot of the cross. As John Wesley, one of the great awakening pastors back in the 1700s, a friend of George Whitfield, brother of Charles Wesley, he says, it has a reference here to the entire gospel, to the whole economy of grace and mercy, delivering us from the wrath of God and exciting us to all duty. As you really genuinely camp out at the foot of the cross and you read the gospels, perhaps even use a tool like the Passion of the Christ and watch the Passion of the Christ or camp out at the last section of Ben-Hur and you look at the cross and you look at all that Jesus did and you watch his pure and innocent blood be poured out from the wounds that were inflicted by sinful men making a mockery of him, you will be excited towards holy living and Christian discipleship. Chrysostom, who... It was a saint called a saint. Hey, if you love Jesus here, you're a saint too, so don't feel bad. But back in the 300 ADs, uh, Chrysostom was given that nickname. It meant golden-tongued. And every time he'd preach, people would stand up and applause. 
And he says this, for since Paul means it's from this, from the gospel, from God's mercies, that you have those numberless blessings from the mercies of God, reverence them. Revere God's blessings. Be moved to compassion by them. For they themselves take the attitude of suppliance that you would show no conduct unworthy of them. Do you want to be supplied strength and enablement for the great tasks that have been laid before you? To be a missionary if you're called to be an, a, a missionary? To be a witness when you're called to be a, mis, uh, a witness? Spend time at the cross. Spend time at what Jesus has done and, and, and receive the power that's presented through that. And then he goes on to say, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you're camping out upon, you're thinking about those things, present your bodies. Present speaks of an exhibition, uh, a testing that takes place. He says, present and yield up your bodies. Now, we all present our bodies whether you think you do or not. Many of you spent extra time in front of the mirror because it was a Sunday morning and you want to do present your body to the Lord. Some churches, you know, they're the suit and tie churches and they're doing that because they want to present themselves before the Lord really fancy Nancy. Not so much up here. I got flip-flops on today. Sorry. Present the Lord in different ways. Um, but we all present ourselves in different ways. If you're like in the parade on the 4th of July, you're presenting yourself. You're presenting something. And it all, whatever we're presenting, it affects the way that we look, what we wear, how we act. And we're told here, it's time to present our bodies. Yeah, our actual bodies. You look in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, we're going to hopscotch around chapter 6 just till we get to verse 19. But he says there in verse 11, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of that, don't let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. This is a great parallel chapter that's saying these instruments, these members, these appendages, your eyes, ears, mouth and nose, head and shoulders, knees and toes, start presenting these things as instruments of worship to God now because you're in Christ and stop presenting them to the world as instruments of sin. When your members are now instruments of Christ, Things like, oh, I fell into an adulterous affair just don't happen. Or I fell into sexual immorality just doesn't happen. There's a reason that ships that are out on the sea can actually go against the wind even though they're sailboats. Why is that? Because of the position of their sail. As one wise man once said, it's about the position of the sail, not the force of the gale. As we are in a world that is blowing straight against us, we are able to position our members, position our sails towards righteousness so that our boat moves in a way that's glorifying to God. And when you have your members, your eyes, ears, mouth, nose, not to be dumb and kid-like or whatever, head and shoulders, knees and toes, point every member of your body towards Christ and glorifying Him and furthering His kingdom, and unrighteousness and sin won't prevail in your life. It won't prevail. Your lips are offered up to the Lord. That foul mouth just won't be happening anymore. You might slip up and stumble, 
And if I can be your pastor and be honest, hanging sheetrock this week, chipped it all up, ruined a whole sheet, didn't say the greatest words. But you know what I did immediately after they came out? I repented. I cried out to God. I was sorrowful and shameful over my sin, even telling you, I'm sorry that those words came out. But God changed my direction of my mouth, and he changed the affection of my heart. And that is what repentance is. Not only change of direction, but change of affection. We yield up our members now. Oh, I don't worship Satan anymore. Well, what are you worshiping? You're still worshiping the world, and it's leading to death. Look at that next week. Don't just not worship Satan. Flee youthful lusts, Paul says. But he also says then, pursue righteousness. Change your direction and change your affection. Yield your bodies up. Let your uh, bodies now be presented as instruments for righteousness to God. Look at verse 16 of Romans 6. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You're that one's slaves whom you obey, whether it's of sin leading to death or of, of obedience leading to righteousness. And then jump down to verse 19. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members, your eyes, ears, mouth, nose, as slaves of righteousness to holiness. To quote Chrysostom again, which um, was neat, read him and then everyone else quoted him. I was like, all right. He had a, a great thing here for us where he says, how is the body, it may be said, to become a sacrifice? How do we present it as a living sacrifice? Let the eye look upon no evil thing, and it has become a sacrifice. Let your tongue speak nothing filthy, and it's become an offering. Let thine hand do no lawless deed, and it's become a whole burnt offering. Or rather, this is not enough, but we must have good works also. Let the hand do alms. The mouth bless them that cross one, and the hearing find leisure evermore for lections of Scripture. In other words, let all of these appendages not only not sin, but now be used as instruments of worship towards your God. The little kid's song that we grew up singing, Oh, be careful, little eye, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you touch. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. For the Father up above, he is looking down with love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Even to our kids, how are they motivated to walk in purity? Because your Father, he loves you. He loves you. Man, grace is a great motivator. Fear is a horrible motivator. I've been finding that out. You kids, pick up your room. If it's not done in 10 minutes, you're getting a spanking. Come up 10 minutes. There, nothing's been done here, you know. <laughs> then the Holy Spirit. How about a little trip to Dairy Queen this afternoon? Man, the... <laughs> ding! You know, polish it down. Grace is a great motivator. Looking at God's mercies compels us to lay our lives down as a living sacrifice. Hebrews says that. Philippians says that. that you know, that in Philippians 1.20, that Christ would be magnified in my body, whether in my life or in my death. Have you said that? Have you cried that out? Has that been your prayer? I want God to be magnified in my body, even if it means my death. In Hebrews 13, 15, 
It says, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Speaking of offering our lips of the living sacrifice, let these lips, their holy lips, purchased by the blood of Jesus, no longer my own. And now they are used to praise God and to worship God and to glorify his name. Offer up your bodies. The body is important to the Lord. The body will be resurrected on that day. God did and speaks forth what no other religion says they'll do. And that is that the body will be resurrected on that day. And our bodies will live for eternity. If you're not in Christ, your body will die for all eternity. You'll be in your body in hell suffering for all eternity. Those in Christ, bodily resurrection in paradise with God for all eternity. Bodies are important. Now to the Greeks, the body was a hindrance. The body was gross. Get away from it. The body was just a housing place for the human spirit. They used to say, and their slogan was Soma Sima Estin. The body is a tomb in which the human spirit was imprisoned. But it's clear to Paul, from Paul to us, that the body was to be presented as our spiritual act of worship. It's significant to Christians. No worship is pleasing to God that is only inward and only abstract and mystical. Our worship to the Lord must express itself in concrete acts of service performed by our bodies. Authentic Christian discipleship will include the negative mortification of our body. The Holy Spirit leads us to kill sin, Romans 8, 13 and 14, as well as the positive presentation of our members to God in worship. We'll be worshiping God in the negative by slaughtering sin in our life and in the positive by worshiping and glorifying and uh, pouring ourselves out for God. Our bodies that at one point in Romans chapter three, when Paul just got, got done telling us every man is radically depraved, it fallen short of the glory of God. And every man apart from Christ has a throat that is an open tomb. Their tongues have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness and their feet are swift to shed blood. That's the unregenerate, unsaved man. But now because of God's rich mercies, our feet walk in his paths. Our lips speak the truth, spread the gospel and sing spiritual songs to one another and to the Lord. Our tongue will speak Words that bring healing. Our hands will lift up people that have fallen. They'll perform many miraculous works as well as mundane tasks like cooking and cleaning and serving people. They'll type things out and mend things for the glory of God. Our arms will embrace the people that are unloved. And our ears will now listen to the cries of the distressed. Our eyes will look humbly and patient in worship towards God. The theologian Griffith Thomas said, no religion values the body like Christianity because the scriptures teach us that through our bodies and their functioning, we can tangibly touch people with the love of Christ. As is a newsboy's song or something like that, I want to be your hands, I want to be your feet, I want to go where you send me. We get to tangibly be Christians little Christs. So offer your bodies up as a living 
sacrifice. No doubt, speaking of sacrifices, Paul's going back to the Old Testament, referencing the burnt offering separate from the sin offering. The sin offering was a requirement that an animal was to be shed, their blood was to be shed for the covering over of sin. Because God is a holy God, he can't just wink at sin or sweep it under the rug. He's a just holy God who requires blood for the forgiveness and remission of sin. Where there's no blood, there's no remission of sin, the book of Hebrews tells us. And so Jesus came as the fulfillment of the sin offering. Also in the scripture, we have the burnt offering. This offering, among many others, we're just going to get into those two real quick. Uh, this burnt offering was an offering of commitment to God. It expressed complete dedication and devotion to the Lord. Therefore, in offering our bodies up as living sacrifices, what are we telling to the Lord? I'm completely devoted to you. They used to put the ox up or the bull up on the altar. You know, or whatever. And put it up on there, slaughter it, light it on fire. You didn't see this ox like, kind of like getting his leg and like leaving it off the altar. No, put that leg back up on there. You're totally supposed to be devoted to the, you know, the tail, the horn. I just want to get my horn off of here. This offering meant all of it, Lord. All of it is yours. And so now we bring our bodies onto the altar. Not a part of us should try to get off, should try to get out of the commitment to the Lord. We should be showing the Lord through our bodies being brought up on the altar that we're giving him complete possession, complete access into every area of our life. Lord, you have access to this. You don't want it going on? Say the word, it's done. You want me over here? Say the word, I'm there. You have control totally from my life. Jim Elliott, hopefully you recognize that name. He was a missionary who was martyred back in the 1950s along with a lot of his friends uh, by the Alca Indians. I think it's Ecuador as they flew their little plane down there into the jungle and were ministering to the Alca Indians. But before he was killed, he wrote in his diary, God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks in my life that I may burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. Can you pray that? Do you even have a diary? No, I'm kidding. That doesn't matter. You know, but if you were to write this down, I pray thee, Lord, light one-third of thine sticks within my life, you know. The rest is mine, you know, or whatever. Keep this back for me, for my labor on the, you know, whatever. Get into some weird accents. I don't know what that's all about, but. <laughs> Do you say, Lord, light these idle sticks in my life, all of them. Light me on fire. I want to present, like Paul tells me to, that he's begging me and urging me to, that it's all, it's all, it's all for you. Now these sacrifices aren't given to obtain favor from God. Maybe he'll like me now. No, we give these sacrifices and our body as a sacrifice because we already have favor. Because we've been given his favor. We've been given his love by the mercies of God. We can present our bodies as living sacrifices. It's good to know that they're living sacrifices. This is in direct contrast to the Old Testament sacrifice that would die there on the altar. And while Paul is saying, die to self, he's saying, I've got a life for you to live. That life will not be your own. 
We're living sacrifices. And Paul says, we're living, uh, Peter says, we're living stones in the, in the house of faith. Living means perpetual, lasting, never neglected. Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Well, if you've been crucified, how are you writing this? Shouldn't you be, be dead right now? He goes on. Uh, Nevertheless, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. See, through faith, we've been crucified on the cross with Jesus. Rory is dead. Rory's self is dead. There's a new Rory that's living, a Rory that's been born again. He doesn't live for himself. Sometimes he tries to creep in, but ultimately... Live for Jesus, for the one that loves me and gave himself for me. Is that the same for you? This sacrifice is not only living, but it's holy. It's immaculate. As the Old Testament sacrifices were to be lambs without spot and without blemish. They were to be pure. God has purified us by his blood. But are the the sacrifices that we're offering, are we walking in purity? Is our body set apart for worshiping God? These holy bodies, these bodies that are acceptable to God or well-pleasing to God. You know, the Macedonians were a group of Greek people who were givers. When they got the gospel, man, they were given back all the time. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you read about just the Macedonians and their great gifts that they would give to the church. And they knew that Paul was in need, and so they sent a gift to Paul, and he writes them back in Philippians 4.1 or uh, 418, sorry. And he says, I received the gift that Epaphroditus sent. This gift was a sweet smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Man, back at the temple, they had altars and, and they had animals burning. It was nothing but a continual barbecue. I mean, you had spices burning, you had bread burning, you had incense burning, you had bowls burning. I mean, it was like, It seemed like a party up there on the hill. Aroma filling the city. And in the same way, our sacrifices produce an aroma, a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. And no longer do we look to Jerusalem and to a a, a temple that's uh, staying in one place. But Jesus told the uh, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, No longer will people go over there to worship or over there to worship in these two main places of worship, but they will worship wherever they're at because God is spirit. And whoever worships him must worship in spirit and in truth. And just as the Old Testament sacrifices, where there was a morning offering, there was a noon offering, an evening offering, so do our bodies get offered up to the Lord every day. The moment we start seeing that leg starting to creep off the altar, we say, Lord, I offer it back to you. How did it get off of there? This bit of my heart, this bit of my mind, this bit of my affection, this bit of my intentions, I give it back to you. And Paul says all of this in light of the mercies of God from the earlier part of Romans, all of this, do you see it at the, at the end of the verse? This is your reasonable service. Reasonable in the Greek, it's logicine. It's where we get our word logic. Like on Big Fat Greek Wedding, the dad's saying, all the words we got, they're from the Greek. You pick one. Logic. Logicine. This is our logical service to be living sacrifices sold out all in for the Lord. 
It's your reasonable service. Service speaks of the spiritual act of worship. Epictetus was a first century Stoic philosopher. And he said, if I were a nightingale, I would do what is proper to a nightingale. And if I were a swan, what is proper to a swan? In fact, I am logikos, a rational being. So I must praise God. It is our reasonable, natural service, knowing the mercies of God, to be worshipers of God, as it's natural for a swan to float on the water. And you know what? If when Elijah offered to God a visible sacrifice on the top of Mount Carmel, and the fire came down from heaven and lapped up the sacrifice and the water and the dust and everything, how much more is he going to lap up our lives with the fire of the Holy Spirit when we offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army, and he was asked how he could ever account for the way that God had used him, an ordinary man, in the vastness of England. And William Booth said this, I believe it's because Jesus Christ has all of me. Does Jesus have all of you? Being a living sacrifice is nothing less than the appropriate and expected response to God's mercy as we have experienced it. As John Stott said, only a vision of his mercy will inspire us to present our bodies to him and allow him to transform us according to his will. In closing, just love the stories of uh, Christian missionaries and their biographies and there's a man named C.T. Studd, rightly named because he was a champion for the gospel. Uh, he was brought up in a very wealthy family in England. He went to Cambridge. He was an heir to a vast fortune. He played cricket for uh, the university there in England. And God saved him in the midst of all of that. When God saved him, he read Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and he took very seriously this call to being all in for Jesus, for his body to be a living sacrifice. And so he took all of his vast resources, the, what would you get, heirdom or whatever it is, all that he had, and he gave it away. Except he saved a couple hundred thousand pounds for his wife in case he was ever martyred or lost his life in service for Jesus. A couple hundred thousand pounds is a couple million dollars uh, to us, by the way. Um, when his wife found out that, she, that he had kept back some money to provide for her if he was ever lost for the gospel, she was very angry and she said, do you think that God can only look after you but he can't look after me even when you're gone? And so she made him give away the rest of the hundred thousand pounds. And who did he give it away to but to General William Booth of the, C of the Salvation Army? Charles Studd's friends would look at him and say, C.T. Studd, what is wrong with you? Look at what a privileged upbringing you've had and the wealth and the background you've enjoyed. Look at your university education. Look at your status as a sports uh, phenomenon. Look at your vast wealth. Why would you do what you're doing? And C.T. replied, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice that I could ever make for him would be too great. And that's the reason we really know of him to this day. As he gave his life and him and seven other, excuse me, six other buddies from this cricket tournament or whatever, you know, team, uh, known as the, the Cambridge Seven, all moved over to China to be part of Hudson Taylor's China Evangelism Fellowship 
uh, missions. And they all went over there, gave their lives for the gospel. Many of them stayed there. There's pictures on Wikipedia of them, uh, a bunch of cricket players dressed in total Chinese outfits and everything, Chinese little mustaches. And then C.T. Studd would go back over to Africa, to the Congo, and start a giant um, African evangelism uh, movement over there, where towards the end of his life, he would only see his wife once every few years as she would come visit from England. He gave his life for the gospel. The Cambridge Seven gave their lives for the gospel. And what moves men to do that? Well, you heard it from their lips. If Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice I could ever make, giving up direct TV, cutting off the internet subscription at my house because it's causing me to stumble, you know, selling my truck and my house for the poor, whatever it might be. No sacrifice that you could make, even leaving your wife in England so that you could go to the Congo as a missionary. It would be a small, small sacrifice in comparison to what Jesus has done for you. Worship team, why don't you come back up? We can set our books aside and close in prayer. And as we come to the communion table, where we remember the one who gave his all for us, he laid down his life for the world and for the forgiveness of our sins. As we come and take the bread and take the cup, Let's be real before the Lord and ask the Lord to shine on us his light and his goodness and to show us if there is any part of us that's not consumed on the altar, if there's any part of us that we're keeping for ourselves, that relationship, that pastime, that hobby, that form of entertainment, that, that object or that education or that career that seems to define us, there's any part of us that's not his then it shouldn't be ours and let's let the holy spirit prop us back up rightly on the altar and let us be living sacrifices for him maybe for you it'd be the first time today you maybe walk through these doors not a christian not someone who has made jesus lord and savior of your life maybe you thought he was just savior no, you can't have one but not the other. He must be your Lord and your Savior. And today, you could just take a step of faith and just say, Lord Jesus, I've been living for myself. And you know all the areas that that's been the case. Please forgive me for that. I've been my own idol. And I've been making idols and gods out of everything. But you're the one true God. And you're the only one who's worthy of this life and these energies, and this finance. All that I am, God, I want to be all yours. I'm all in. Forgive me of my sin. Wash me clean. Though my sins be as scarlet, Lord, would you wash them as white as snow today? And if that's you and you've prayed that, just receive today the forgiveness of sins. Receive today the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as he comes into your life. God himself dwelling in you to empower you to live a life worthy of his name. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive blessing and honor and glory and power. He's redeemed us to him by his blood and he is worthy of everything we have. 
As the old delirious song goes, Lord, all you want is all we have. So, Lord, we want to give it all. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.